Welcome to episode 44 of Teach Me Tiger. You've changed my diaper. I did? <laughs> Not lately, though. Thank no. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Teach Me Tiger. I'm Melody, and I'm here with my dear dad, Justin. <laughs> Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Today, it's just me and my dad. Typically, on the show, we bring in an experty guest to tell us about their thing. Today, I'm asking my dad about his time as an actor and dancer in New York in the early 60s. So he is an expert on his own life story. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> That's accurate, right? <laughs> right. You're probably the one who knows the most about your own story. So I would yeah. say you're an expert in the field. Okay. <laughs> and I should be an expert in something. <laughs> so maybe I'm stretching the show concept a little bit here, but I don't care because it's my show, baby. <laughs> so welcome, listeners, to a feel-good holiday love fest with me and my dad here on Teach Me Tiger. This is my daddy. Hi, dad. Hi, sweetheart. <laughs> my dad, Justin, is a really interesting guy who has done all kinds of stuff. He has some fans out there. Uh, Chris's friend Robin is a really big fan of yours. <laughs> she has your Christmas album. She loved you at the wedding. Dad and my Uncle Woody sang at my wedding. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, Robin's one of your fans, and she's probably listening right now. So, hey, Robin. Hi, Robin. <laughs> So one of the many cool things about my dad is that he was a professional dancer and actor in New York, and uh, I can't wait to hear about it. But first, real quick, do you have any week peaks? Any How's it going? Anything great that's happened in the last week or so or interesting or funny? It's been a terrible week, actually, because I've been sick with a cold. And uh, the best thing that happened is it started to get better, and it's almost all gone. No, well, that's good. I didn't get to go to the gym, which would have been my good thing to tell you. But I, I went to the it. gym. And the first time I went, I've gone twice now in the year 2019, which makes probably a grand total of three times in my life. <laughs> mm. The first time I hated it. The second time I went with my friend Leslie, and she had this set of videos, instructional videos on oh, what to do at the gym. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So we followed that which gave us some direction, and I didn't feel like such an idiot, because my problem is that I feel very insecure at the gym. Oh, well, I feel... But I'm working on that. Okay, it's good not to feel insecure, <laughs> that's for sure. Yes, it's definitely ideal not to. But, I mean, I'm not very athletic, as you know, and I've avoided the gym my entire life, and so this is a steep learning curve for me. Well, the important thing about the gym is to go slow. Mm -hmm. Don't try to become a champion bodybuilder on the first day yeah do you mind if i say you're, how old you are i don't mind i'll say i'm 85 i'm going to be 86 the day after christmas yeah 
And I would say that you're in very good shape. I don't know many 86-year-olds that are as with it and physically active as you. I'm sure the gym has a lot to do with you doing so well. Oh, yes, absolutely. So you're my inspiration, Dad. I'm serious, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm approaching 40, and certainly my body is not as strong as it used to be. Things start to feel like they're falling apart. I don't want that. Well, you you will feel terrific if you acquire the habit of going to the gym a few times a week, mm-hmm. two times or three times a week. That will improve your feeling about yourself fantastically. Yeah. It gives you more confidence and gives you more energy mm-hmm. and makes you look better, too, almost always. And you know what? They have pictures on the machines, so I can follow the pictures. Sure. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so I would say that's my week peak. So there's one other thing we have to do before we get to the meat of the show, which is icebreakers. Can I play you the song? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks, reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. So I have a box here. I'm going to get you to reach in. I'm going to reach in and pull out something. The question is, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Holy cats. (laughs) There's so many things I would like to be an expert in. Chemistry and some of the other sciences. I would like to be a very proficient instrumentalist with some musical instrument. What would you pick? What instrument? Possibly the classical guitar. Mm. I, I have done that and I had to stop because I lopped off the end of a couple of fingers. No big deal. Just a couple of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, uh, it actually isn't a big deal in life, but it felt like a big deal at the moment. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it certainly did stop my guitar playing. But if you could be an expert in something, you'd pick chemistry or a classical guitar? final answer <laughs> oh jeez! oh that's it there's lots of other things i would like to be good at lots yeah. lots of things this is uh the benefit of hindsight <laughs> i have a dream of becoming very good at playing the banjo and then being in some sort of band well, and also i would like to take voice lessons so that i could sing well that that would be very satisfying i'd like to do that too well maybe we should just start a band We've never had a family band before. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be great. Well, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of ice to break necessarily. I shouldn't think so. (laughs) We've known each other a long time. I'd say. uh, About 38 and change years. Yeah. (laughs) You've changed my diaper, I would assume. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Not lately, though. Thank goodness. (laughs) Icebreakers. Okay, Dad. Do you want to get down to business? Sure. Okay. First of all, so we've established you're 86, bristling with youth and good spirits. You're very clever, multi-talented guy. Oh, I don't know about all that. (laughs) (laughs) I usually talk about how all of my guests are very good looking. Because you, podcasting you, you, is obviously you, a visual medium. <laughs> yeah, you, you can You're very say, good looking. You, you could, oh, good. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> 
but so you were born in 1933. When did you start dance? Okay. I was a student at Williams College, and I wasn't fitting in well at all. Didn't have the social skills to make my way through teenage years very good. Um, so Williams College was Williams Col- a private high school? No. Oh, Williams College is a university. A university, okay. Uh I'm not sure what the difference between a university and a college is anyway. In in the U.S., everybody talks about going to college. Right. In Canada, spe- specifying university means something different. Right, but, but not in the U.S. Not really, no. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was at Williams College and studying art, and uh, the Smith College Modern Dance Group came and performed, and... A lot of the guys in my fraternity house went to watch them. I think we just wanted to see uh, pretty girls in tights. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I was really impressed by the movement, the beauty of moving to music, and uh, the dramatic possibilities that you could have with uh, expressing things in movement. And why not add... Uh, why not add song to it and and plot and the sorts of things that go on in, in theater. So what I was envisioning actually was a, a total dramatic experience with dance at the center of it, and eventually somebody else did it. And what it, what it was was West Side Story. That was exactly what I had had in mind, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But anyway, so I decided I wanted to learn how to do that and they taught dance at Bennington College. And that wasn't very far from Williams. That's where guys went to get dates and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I, I went up, I went there. I, I, I hitchhiked up to Bennington to take a class. I enrolled in a class and hitchhiked there to, to take the class. And I was absolutely enthralled. First of all, by how beautiful people look in tights. It, it, it's just fantastic. The human form is a beautiful thing. I liked the movement. I liked what I was doing. I wasn't doing it very well. But I, I began to think about going to Bennington, leaving Williams College and going to Bennington and studying dance seriously. And, and I started asking about it, if I could please just find some way of doing that. And eventually, I improved sufficiently so the head of the department told me that I might do that. The way the way it worked at Bennington was that there were six men in the performing arts at Bennington. It was a women's college at that time. Mm-hmm. There were, I think, 600 women there and just six men in the whole setup. And they were in the performing arts and they all had full scholarships. The point was to have um, men who could take part in plays or in dance. Mm-hmm. And also there were some musicians there too. At any rate, I was able to get one of these scholarships and start studying dance at Bennington. And this was a wonderful thing in my life, a beautiful change that helped me enormously. So um, to prepare for that, were you taking dance classes in order to audition to get into Bennington? Uh, no, I took the classes at Bennington just because I wanted to learn how to do what I had seen. Oh, okay. But once once I was able to be a full-time student at Bennington, things developed much more rapidly. I began to learn the techniques of dancing, which were taught as a modern skill, not ballet, 
although eventually I did study ballet. While I was a student at Bennington, I came to Toronto one summer when Bennington was not in session and studied ballet at the National Ballet School. In Toronto? In Toronto, yeah. Oh. It was my first experience away from home and in a different city and learning how to make my way because I didn't have any money, particularly. Uh-huh. I had a little bit of money when I arrived, but I had to find a job, and I got a job washing dishes at a restaurant. At Franz, right? I worked at yeah, Franz. Franz is still there. <laughs> That's right. And uh, eventually, the guy that ran the restaurant realized I was a little bit more than a dishwasher. I was I was a waiter. <laughs> <laughs> and they put me out on the floor, and I learned a little bit about waiting on table in a kind of informal setting. Mm-hmm. And that was that was good. I later was able to use that skill in New York when I was unemployed, got get jobs in restaurants. So um, that was a great experience studying ballet, and it improved me a lot. And, and what I, what year would this have been that you were in Toronto? I think that would have been nineteen fifty seven. Okay, nineteen fifty seven. And um, so let's see where where did that take me back to back to Bennington. And uh, the Bennington dancers got very good in that following year because uh, Mary Anthony came to teach at Bennington when the head of the department had a sabbatical. And Mary taught technique much better than we had had it. Being a professional dancer, she knew the value of knowing how to do things. It wasn't all theory. Mm-hmm. And everybody's technique improved quite a bit. And while she was there, Mary choreographed a a modern piece called Threnody. And so the Bennington dancers became the first cast of the dance piece Threnody, which turned out to be a very major piece in the modern dance repertory later on. A dance critic named Louis Horst, who was famous in the field at the time, said that Threnody realized better than any other piece that he had ever seen the possibilities of modern dance in theater. So it was a great experience to be in that piece and then later in New York to be in Mary Anthony's company and uh, tour with her. We went all over the place. And by company, you mean like dance yeah. dance company? Dance performances okay. in modern dance in many cities in the United States and Canada. And I'm pretty sure we performed in Winnipeg and at Banff at the oh, wow. music festival there. And to get there, we, we went on a train through the Canadian Rockies. Beautiful, fantastic trip. Huh. So, I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah. It's a good thing we're having this talk. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, those were my early experiences in dance. And uh, in New York, I discovered, because we weren't able to get paid for dancing, not much anyway, we, we rehearsed for nothing mm-hmm. and got paid something like 60 bucks a show. And dancers, I found out, could get jobs in Broadway shows and get paid a living wage. So I began auditioning for things. And very quickly, I picked up uh, Song of Norway, which was a show at Jones Beach, which is a marine theater that had a canal around an island. So it was possible for there to be barges with parts of the performance on the barge. Parts of the show could be on the barge? Yes, I was on the barge. 
uh, where to, was the audience? Uh, well, they sat in in bleachers that surround oh. that surrounded the moat. Uh, not all the way around the island. The dressing rooms were in the back. There was a big stage facing the moat, facing the bleachers. And most of the dancing took place on the stage. I had a nice solo in that. And a ballerina and I did a, a duet on the barge to uh, the music from the Hall of the Mountain King. starts out and builds to a big climax and at that climax I held this girl over my head on this barge which the idea was we were pirates and I was absconding with a captive girl <laughs> <laughs> lucky <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was it was a neat duet uh, I had a good time doing it and it was a really nice way to get into performing professionally. The choreographer was a modern dancer. And I think that's why I got the solos and special attention I did, because most of the men that he, he hired for the chorus uh, were trained only in ballet. Okay. I was the only one that could do some of the stuff he wanted to do. Anyway, that was fun. And after it was all over, I uh, got a job in a show called First Impressions. I got the show right... Oh, I, I was in something called the uh, Hanukkah Festival for Israel, which was done in Madison Square Garden, to the music of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. This was really interesting, and all the people in it were modern dancers. Um, and it was choreographed by Pearl Lang, who had a company at the time. And that was right before Christmas, so I had a great Christmas that year. I had a lot of money in my pocket. Yeah. And I got into a show. It was first impressions. And so I knew that as soon as Christmas was over, I was going to go into rehearsal. I, I had money and I was going to have money. I didn't mind spending money for Christmas and I just bought anything that seemed to be yeah. good for whoever. And so that was, that was really a, a good Christmas from the perspective of giving. I had a great time. Can I ask stuff. if that's the Christmas you gave your mom the blue hippo from the, uh, from the museum? Yeah. Might be, might be. Yeah, the museum. Yeah, the the (laughs) the Metropolitan Museum is a a place that's just full of good Christmas ideas. Yeah, and uh, and I used to go there a lot anyway, loving art and so forth. In New York, I was also a member of the Museum of Modern Art and spent a lot of time there. It was a great place to go and meet girls. I was just going to (laughs) say, girls who were interested in stuff I was interested in. Yeah, so it was quality uh, gals. Yeah, that's right, quality (laughs) gals. You bet. So anyway, First Impressions was a terrible show. 
It had a good idea. It was based on Pride and Prejudice. And it was directed by A. Burroughs and written by Julie Stein. And it came out to be much coarser than the novel, which was a period piece, very elegant, and about this middle-class family in England and their social climbing and so forth. There was a woman in the show that I admired very much named Hermione Gingold, who was a comedian who had appeared on many television shows. And the nature of her humor was very coarse. And so they picked her to do that. And she played Mrs. Bennett, the mother of this large family of daughters who all needed to be married off. That was the basic plot of the show. Mm-hmm. So she she played it like they expected. And Abe Burroughs directed it that way. But it bombed because all the people who had heard that it was based on Pride and Prejudice, expected something elegant and tasteful. Right, something more like Pride and Prejudice. Right. So the critics just raked it over the coals. They panned it desperately. I had become quite impressed with, and I, I was very fond of Hermione Gingold, not in a romantic way. She was an old lady, and I was 21. No, I was older than that, 24, 25, something like that. But anyway... I really admired her, and uh, I had a scene with her, too. I played a butler, as well as dance in the chorus. And so she had a monologue at one point, and it was my job as the butler to open the doors and enter the stage and announce the butler thing, dinner is served. (laughs) (laughs) And she turned and, and gave me a curtsy, and I reacted to that with a surprise and curtsied back. And this that was just my little thing that I did. Nobody directed me to do it, but it got a laugh out of the audience. Right. And that was wonderful. That was my big moment. I made the audience <laughs> laugh. I just loved it. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, did the they show, like that kind of thing? Pardon? The, you know, the, the director. Would the director have welcomed a little uh, bit of improvisation well, like that? <laughs> um. I'm sure he would have if he noticed it, but he, he never remarked at it. Uh, but George Gaines was the understudy, and he saw this in the wings, and he said, that was you that got that laugh, wasn't it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that was first impressions, and it died a quick death. And I think it had four months of theater parties, and when they were used up, it was done. So I was footloose and looking for something else. And by this, and I wasn't dancing with Mary anymore. I just sort of realized it's not where I'm going to be going. I think maybe I want to be in theater. Mm-hmm. And I, I had started studying acting. So Camelot came along and uh, got into Camelot and uh, became a really high point in my life. I, was I, in, I have a record. The soundtrack of Camelot, and your photograph can be found in there. Oh, yeah. Did I ever show you that? Oh, I've seen it tons of times. (laughs) (laughs) On the the record cover, on the jacket, there's a picture where I'm discernible. Yeah, you're wearing wearing a a green hat, I believe, or a green outfit, but you have a hat. There's a hat. Yeah. 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 I would recognize that jawline (laughs) 300 meters away. Right. So Camelot was good. I didn't really get to know Julie Andrews very well, but I had a couple of moments with her. It turned out that one of the scenes required 
Julie and Richard to Richard Burden, right? Uh, Julie and Richard were on top of a piece of scenery, uh, which was meant to represent a balcony on a castle, mm-hmm. and they were overlooking a field where there was going to be a joust. Lancelot was going to have this joust, and they were going to watch it from up there. Well, she had to climb, Julie had to climb a rickety stair to get up to the top of this thing, and she asked for somebody to please hold her hand. And they picked me to hold Julie's hand. So that was fun. (laughs) I remember that very well. There's also, I don't know, we probably don't have the encyclopedia anymore, but we found a picture when we were kids. We looked up Camelot in the encyclopedia. This right. is back in the days when there were encyclopedias that were printed on paper and bound into books. <laughs> oh, my God. Nowadays, everyone just goes online, right? But we found a picture from Camelot, and you and another man are holding Julie Andrews up in the air. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah. So, the- you, you held her hand and you touched her bum. Yes, Dick Kutch and I. <laughs> uh, we... We crossed our hands. You, you hold your own wrist, and then you can grab the other guy's wrist, and he mm-hmm. grabs. He he's holding his too, so that you make a you make a, a square with your four hands, and that made a seat. And we swung Julie during, and she was singing while we did this. Uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> uh, she was wonderful. She was great to work with. She she was always willing to be the first one to help to straighten out any problem, any traffic problem that existed. She was always right there, and she gave it a wonderful performance. It was quite dependable for its quality. She's a professional to the gills. Uh, Richard Burton was not. Uh, he's a great talent. I didn't mention when I was at Bennington, I, I knew another talent who was also a great talent named Alan Arkin. Alan was a student at Bennington when I was there. So you were two of the six? Yes. Wow. That's okay. right. And so I didn't hang out with Alan too much at Bennington. I knew him a bit and later in New York a bit more. You're probably both too busy with the 600 girls. <laughs> well, yeah, he was busier than I was. Uh, his his girlfriend had a baby. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's Adam Arkin, who later became an actor, too. Oh, okay. And Alan got a, an Academy Award for something he did. I think it was based on The Sound and the Fury, where he played a deaf mute. He was wonderful. Oh, and coincidentally, I uh, I dated the girl that he later married, too. Briefly, I uh, went out with her a couple times, and we talked about acting and so forth. She had been in uh, a little thing called a clearing in the forest or clearing the woods or something. And at that point, I had been through Camelot, and I compared Alan to Richard. And I'll do that now. Alan was a very professional sort of an actor. I mean, he was dependable. He he would give you the best he could, always. Mm-hmm. Richard was a talent beyond anything. He, he was a gigantic talent. And he was very careless about his responsibility to do the best he could. Right. Some of Richard's performances in Camelot were atrocious. He always drank in the performance. And sometimes it damaged what he did. Not always, but sometimes. I had one scene where I had to wait in the wings, and Richard had a quick change. His dresser met him to help him on with a cape. This was right before the end of the show, too. Mm -hmm. He wore a cape to do the last scene, and his dresser met him 
with cape and a tumbler of brown fluid, which I certainly believe was some kind of whiskey. Right. A tumbler, uh, huh? Yes. Wow. Well, it would be half full. He would knock that back before going out on the stage for that scene. So I think he drank steadily during the show. So there was my contrast with, with Alan was that Richard just didn't care. He, he could, he could recite reams of Shakespeare and it was said of him that he wasn't happy in any role unless it was Hamlet. <laughs> so he, he was a great talent. No two ways about that. What, fabulous. What, what did he end up being most famous for? Marrying Elizabeth Taylor, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he left Camelot to do, I think that's where he met her. They did Cleopatra, mm. and he married her and divorced and married her again, like that. And he went through the Camelot chorus like, like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> so that was Camelot. In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot for happily ever aftering than here in Camelot. Can I tell you a quick aside about Julie Andrews? Yeah, it's sure. Just something that happened last night. Holly lost one of her top front teeth. Yeah. Holly's my daughter. And she, so she lost it at school and they gave her like a little plastic case for it that looks like a tiny little treasure box to get it home. And so she wanted to see the tooth fairy. And so she wanted to get like a sticky mouse trap and set up a trap for the tooth fairy. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very upset that I wasn't letting her do it. And I said, well, but if you trap the tooth fairy, what about all the other kids who lost their teeth today? They're not going to get a visit from the tooth fairy and they'll be so sad. And she didn't, she didn't give a shit. Like <laughs> she just wanted to catch the tooth fairy. So she decided that she would go to sleep with this little thing in her hand so that when the tooth fairy pulled it out of her hand, she'd wake up and see the tooth fairy. But anyway, so I told her, listen, we're not going to trap the tooth fairy, but let's go online and I'll Google tooth fairy and we'll see if maybe we could find a picture of her on the internet. And so <laughs> we went through Google images and there were a bunch of different cartoon drawings. And she said, no, that's not it. That's not it. And we came across a picture of Julie Andrews with fairy wings on. And I said, do you think that's the real tooth fairy? And she said, I think it might be. So last night I convinced my daughter that Julie Andrews is the tooth fairy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the tooth fairy did manage to pry the treasure box out of her fingers without her waking up. Oh, so. great. <laughs> So in New York, could you tell me about your first apartment there? Yeah, this was when I was uh, still a student at Bennington. And in the winter, I wanted to keep studying with, with Mary. And I got an apartment that was right around the corner from her studio. It was over the Charm Coffee Shop. It's a really old building. And downstairs, there was this place, wholesaling coffee beans, and you could get fantastic coffee there. And upstairs, right above the store, I was in this apartment where the floor slanted a little bit. And uh, it was in terrible condition. The, the walls were crumbly. I would have to pull the bed away from the, the wall to make it. But, of course, it would roll. <laughs> if I let go of it, it rolled gently back and bumped the wall. And there would be a sprinkle of plaster <laughs> dust coming down. It was, it was really something. It was a rooming house, so 
there were a lot of other people in the building. And a toilet was shared and a kitchen was shared. And it got very cold in the winter. And people uh, always would leave the gas on in the kitchen so that it would warm up the building, I guess. I don't know. But it was it was uncomfortable living there. But made the most of it for a winter. And that was my first first apartment. I know you have several apartment stories from mm-hmm. your time in New York. Do you have a favorite? Um, yeah. I had two apartments I I really liked a lot, and both of them cost sixty dollars a month, and both of them were rent controlled buildings. That's sixty six zero dollars a month. That's right. And how much was an ice cream cone? Oh, probably. Um, this is how I'm measuring inflation. Uh, probably about fifty cents, maybe. Okay, more than a nickel. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, one of the early apartments I had when I was dancing with Mary, and. At the time that I got into First Impressions, I was living in an apartment shared with Paul, my roommate from Bennington. And Paul understood something about finding apartments in New York. And he explained to me that if you went to a certain location in Times Square, the New York Times would be dropped off for a paper kiosk that was there. And that it was their first drop of the weekend paper. The weekend times would be separated into different sections, of course, but the classified section would be huge and it would come out separately before anything else. And the very first bundle, Paul found out, was dropped off at this one kiosk. Right. And if I would go there, when it was dropped off, be waiting for this bundle to come and the guy would cut it open and hand me the first section of the classified ads and I would step into a restaurant right there. And oh this I did this exact thing. Yeah. And I would I went in this restaurant and started scanning for apartments, looking for all the ones that might do. And this would be about six AM and I would call the phone numbers. Right At six AM? At six AM. How did they feel about that? <laughs> uh, sometimes they were annoyed, but mostly they were glad to get the first call. Yeah. And the trick was to carry money for a month ahead and go and see the apartment and make up your mind on the spot. If you wanted it, offer the money or maybe maybe try and barter, but try and cut the deal, get the apartment right then before anybody else looked at it. So even in 1960 or whenever this was, it was difficult to get a good apartment in New York City. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And lots of people wanted rent-controlled apartments because they were so cheap. So what would have been a, a more average price for the same apartment that you were paying 60 bucks for at the time? Guessing probably a few hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Okay. Gotcha. So you've gone to the place and you've got the classifieds. Uh, yeah. And uh, so in doing that, I did find an apartment on West 92nd Street, just just a little bit, two doors east of Amsterdam Avenue, which is near a subway stop at 96th Street. And uh, that was an extravagant place. It was a sixth floor walk up, uh, but it was a rent control building. And it had a, a dumbwaiter, which operated all the way from the basement up to the up to the top floor where we were. And I think the building dated back to a time when there may have been a kitchen in the basement 
and all the rooms in the building belong to one rich family or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. But mm. the dumbwaiter opened up into every apartment, and I think it must have been for serving food or maybe sending laundry downstairs to be done or something. I don't know. How big was this thing? Could a human fit in it? A human could fit in it, uh, not inside, but I think a person could uh, ride up on top of it and certainly could fit in the shaft. We had many burglaries in that apartment, six as a matter of fact. Was the dumbwaiter involved in any of these burglaries? Because that seems like a security issue to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it actually was not, and I'm I'm sort of surprised. I think that there were other easier ways is oh, what it amounts to. Right. There was an air shaft that went down sort of in the middle of the building, and the air shaft had a, a window into Jean's bedroom. Jean was my roommate. And the very first burglary that we had happened through that air shaft, Somebody had wedged his shoulders against one side and his feet against the other, worked his way down, and we're on the top floor, right? So he didn't have to come too far to get to a window. So here's what happened. Uh, Gene was sleeping. He had his girlfriend over, and uh, so they were asleep in the morning. And I was repainting my bedroom. We were still pretty new to the apartment. Hadn't had any robberies yet. This was the first one. Actually, it didn't turn into a robbery because what happened was I'm painting my bedroom next to Jean's bedroom and I hear voices and Jean was talking to somebody, but it didn't sound like a girl's voice. I thought, that's really weird. What could be going on? Yeah. But I didn't want to poke my head into his bedroom. I mean, you know, so pretty soon there's some sounds walking in the hallway and the front door to the apartment opens and closes and Gene comes back stands in my doorway in his bathrobe and says somebody just came in the window I said came in the window how's that possible well the guy poked his head in and he said is it all right if I come in I can't go back (laughs) (laughs) and it's because he was wedged into the you know into the air shaft and he didn't have any choice. He was either going to fall or he was going to work his way all the way down to the bottom where he, you know, maybe he could fall or maybe he'd be trapped at the bottom. Right. It was he, he was kind of stupid of him to do that. But anyway, Gene let him in and let him out. And he was our first intruder, but he didn't get anything. He didn't steal anything as he obviously wanted to do. And soon after that, we got a gate on that window or bars or something. All the other robberies came through the kitchen, through the kitchen window, because the fire escape was out there. Okay. And we got a gate on the fire escape. And when I bought the gate at the hardware store, the hardware owner said, uh, see, you sell a gate, you sell a pry bar. <laughs> and uh, I was made apprehensive by that remark. <laughs> and... uh Sure enough, somebody pried the gate open and came in. That happened many times. Every every time we'd straighten out the gate or get a different gate or try to you know, do something to buttress up the situation, make it make it better, somebody else would get in. And sometimes they would come in through the front door too. Were I, you scared? Like I would have been 
scared if people um, were coming in my apartment all the time. Well, was it like uh, once every couple of months? What was the frequency uh, like? Well, let's see. I, I, I was there through the end of Camelot, and oh, I hurt myself in Camelot. That was the end of the dancing. But I had a salary continuance, and I spent almost a year after that just getting my salary without doing anything. That was great. <laughs> I had lots of dates, and uh, for the first part of that time, I had my leg in a cast. This was stupid. The, the doctor that treated me put my leg in a hip-to-ankle cast, which caused the muscles to just shrivel up. Uh. It was the worst thing to do. Nowadays, athletes that get injured um, in any sort of active thing usually get back into the activity or into training or physiotherapy or something as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. They deal with the pain and they deal with the swelling and they get back at it right, right. away and build build back up and, and try to resume normal normality. But I was in cast for months. It really ruined me. And my left leg hasn't been the same since. So that was part of the time I was there. And, but uh, I was asking you, how often would you say roughly this was happening? People prying open the gate or coming in the front door? Well, I'm trying to make an assessment because I think I was in the apartment for the whole year that I got the salary continuance. And this was a period of time when the rent control board was closing down the area. It was, the whole block was run down. And our building was included in a plan to be demolished. It was it was becoming more and more the object of predators, thieves, and also they were going into the basement and stealing copper piping so that it was getting so that you couldn't depend on the water. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And the landlady lived in the building that adjoined and she was still collecting rents from us and some other people, mm -hmm. although people were moving out. Mm. Building was getting more empty. And so, yeah, it was a little scary. You, you asked about that. We weren't afraid all the time, but we were apprehensive that we were going to lose stuff all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And Jean lost, uh, while we were still in Camelot, Jean lost a bunch of clothing. They would love to take clothing. And, uh, he was groaning about that to, uh, one of the girls in the show. She was a singer. And she was dating an announcer who had been a football player, a famous football player. It turned out her boyfriend was getting rid of his whole wardrobe. wasn't fashionable anymore. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and she asked him if Jean could have it because Jean was just fresh out of everything. And the guy gave it to Jean. So Jean oh, that's nice. took, yeah, it was great. He got suits and sport jackets and golf shoes and all kinds of crap. And he uh, took some of the suits and things of that sort you know, yeah. that you might you might wear for auditions, especially. Right. You want to look good at an audition, an acting audition, at a dance audition, you wear dance clothing. Right. But Gene got these things uh, adjusted to fit him exactly. He spent some money making these, these things perfect for himself. Mm -hmm. And then we finally decided we had to move out. And Gene and I split up. He got a truck to move his stuff, and I helped him carry things downstairs. And he had some wonderful clothes in a wardrobe 
I guess, kind of thing. Uh, the wardrobe is like a big box. Like a trunk, kind of? Uh, well, no, it was a full-length thing that was meant oh, okay. to stand, but it was made out of cardboard. It was okay. heavy cardboard. And so it had a, a top, which was equally spacious. And so by using both parts as containers, you, all these clothing, this this gigantic amount of precious clothing that he'd gotten from Kyle. Kyle Rote was the guy's name, famous football player. So this stuff he'd gotten from Kyle Rote was divided into these two containers. I'm scared of what's coming. Yeah. Gene and I carried the first one down and put it in his truck, went back upstairs, and the second one was gone. (gasps) A guy had come down from the roof because the stairs in the hall just continued up to the roof. It was just one turn of the stair and out a door onto the roof. Somebody had been waiting for us to do that. And he came in and took away that other box, got it up on the roof, or maybe he just carried all the things on a hanger, one hand, up and out. And so Gene sprinted up onto the roof, and he couldn't see anybody. The guy had scurried away and down some fire escape or something. He's gone. Gene was just so upset. He can't blame him. Uh, but anyway. This is stuff he'd gone and gotten all tailored and. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Back yeah. in the day when people had things tailored. Yeah. And Kyle Rode had really expensive clothes. You know, he's right. a guy had a, a professional football salary and then he was on television as an announcer. Anyway, that was the end of the apartment. But I'll tell you another uh, time. I came back from shopping and the door was open. My stereo was sitting next to the door. Well, I knew what was going on immediately. Someone was in there and was making a little pile of stuff to move fast when he finally finished what he was doing in there. He's probably looking for small items like electric shavers or something that he could sell or pawn. Uh-huh. But he was in there. So we had a a uh, police lock, which had a big bar. So the essence of the lock was that it went from the door to a metal fitting in the floor. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was quite a heavy steel bar. So I picked this bar up as a weapon and went in the apartment. It's dead silent. The guy heard me come in. And I decided it would be smart not to surprise him because maybe he was lying in wait and could surprise me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't know. I thought, hey, I'm going to let my presence be known. And I began swearing <laughs> <laughs> at him <laughs> loudly and angrily. And I began going through the rooms and I heard, pitter, patter, patter. he ran through the hallway while I was going through the rooms, which were in a row. But mm-hmm. The hallway was next to them. He ran down the hallway and out, and I knew that he would go up the stairs and out the door onto the roof. And I chased him with the bar. And then it turned out that he hadn't been able to get out the door onto the roof. It was locked. (gasps) So he was on the stairs, and I was at the foot of the stairs with the bar. Oh, what did he do? He said, please, I not take nothing. And I said, it was not for want of trying. And I thought, well, I can't hold him here forever. What can I do? Yeah. I really didn't want to let him get away. So I I started trying to make noise so somebody else in the apartment would hear and maybe call a cop or something. So he he took out a knife. But he was more afraid of the bar than I was afraid of the knife. Mm -hmm. 
So he turned and ran up the stairs and tried to get out the door again. And this time it gave way and he got out. Oh. Uh, but we lost a lot of stuff. So many things that we lost in the course of the burglaries. And as I say, there were six altogether. So I want to go back. You talked a little bit about how you made money, but in the earlier days when you were maybe fresh out of Bennington and you were in this modern dance company and then taking Broadway jobs and also doing acting lessons, can you paint a little picture of what your day-to-day life looked like then? Mm-hmm. Well, I enjoyed my acting classes, although I wasn't sure they were really teaching me anything important. But I happened to be in a class which was shared by Judd Hirsch, who later became a star on television in a show called Taxi. He was uh, the guy that ran a taxi service, and uh, some of the other actors became famous. And I forget the name of the most famous one, the little little short guy that talks with a Brooklyn accent. Danny DeVito. Yes, Danny DeVito. <laughs> That's with, the one. <laughs> that is the one. I love Danny DeVito. So you but, were in a class with Danny DeVito? No, I did a class with Judd Hirsch. Oh, okay. Oh, but he was in the show with Danny DeVito. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And Judd and I recognized in each other that we we both were talented. And we decided we'd do an, a scene for Actors Studio together. And we worked it up. I forget what it was we did. I think we adapted a, a scene from a novel or other, which was a popular thing to do. Because everybody did certain scenes that were dramatic, you know. We didn't want to, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, so we adapted this thing. And we did it for the people at Actors Studio, thinking it would be really nice to get into Actors Studio. What was Actors Studio? You don't know what Actors Studio was? Actors yeah. Studio was a collection of young actors mm-hmm. who worked together to promote the, um, I can't think of the name of the technique. What is it? It's the Russian Russian guy. Marlon Brando came out of Actors Studio, and Marilyn Monroe came out of Actors Studio. Robert Duvall came out of Actors Studio. And uh, I'm not sure about Dusty Hoffman, but all of those people were in New York when I was there and became stars. I never talked to Dusty Hoffman, although I was up for a stage managing job. Uh, that's another thing that I did when um, when I stopped being a dancer. I was trying to be an actor, but I was offered a stage managing job off-Broadway in the Cherry Lane Theater for Sergeant Musgrave's dance. It was I was an assistant stage manager there. And the guy who was a stage manager later got a job as a stage manager again in a Broadway show. And I was invited by him to cover for him when he had to leave the show for a time. And I actually ran the show for just a couple nights. But there was a star in it named Sam Levine, and he was a rough customer, actually. Sam was an old-style actor, no studio guy. That's short for actor's studio. Right. (laughs) So it was my job after the show, if I saw him departing from the script or the business in some way, I was stage manager. I have to give him his notes. And that was so hard for me. In fact, I hated stage managing. It was all terribly hard for me. Stage manager needs to have his own share of aggression. 
He needs to, self-assertion has got to be not just not a problem, but kind of a specialty of a stage manager. And I just didn't have any of that stuff. I got the job done by working extra, not being so efficient. I was in a state of high anxiety. That's where I get it from. (laughs) (laughs) And later I, I did stage manage another show called Big Man, and that died a quick death. So anyways, that, that's a brief hiatus being a stage manager. That was before I really got deeply into film editing. That was in the middle of the puppeteering and, the, you know, early film editing. I was for a while, I was doing stage managing. You'd mentioned that you lacked aggression as a stage manager. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you had a couple stories about your experiences with public transit in New York. Yeah. Where you had to summon some aggression. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I dealt with aggression. I was surprised when I told you the story about dealing with the intruder with the bar from the... Mm-hmm, that that mm-hmm. surprised me because I wasn't afraid at all. I was brave when I needed to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you're a pretty... Not a passive guy, but you're not an aggressive man. Okay, a good sample of right? that. A good sample <laughs> of how I mishandled stage management. You're an ex-Montessori teacher. You're not <laughs> an aggressive <That's right>. guy. <laughs> That's right. You got it. Uh, when I was a stage manager, stage managing big man, during the rehearsals, there was a big, big guy who had a very loud, robust voice and loved to tell funny stories and stuff. And he wasn't, he wasn't rehearsing at the moment. He was waiting for his scene to be rehearsed, and he was off in the front of the theater in the lobby there, uh, eating a candy bar or something out of a machine, perhaps, I don't know. But he was out there, and there was a scene being rehearsed, and I was sitting in the audience with the producer mm-hmm. and director, mm-hmm. and the scene was underway. And suddenly, this big guy with his booming voice bursts into the auditorium from the lobby where he was, talking loudly, telling some funny story about something that had happened that he just couldn't restrain himself. He was going to tell everybody right then that was it. It just, it was a spontaneous thing that occurred to him. Obviously, he didn't think about what he was doing at all. Yeah. And I didn't interrupt him until I let him finish. I almost got fired because I didn't ream him out on the spot, mm. which would have been the proper thing to do. I just it didn't have it in me to ream anybody out. That, yeah. And anyway. Okay, so back to your story about what happened in New York in the street. In the transit. The the worst the worst situation that happened was way early in uh, the whole thing when I was, I was starting to perform in shows. And it was during the Song of Norway experience. We had to go out to Jones Beach facility in buses. Uh, there was a singer's bus and a dancer's bus. Mm-hmm. And I wound up on the singer's bus very often because I had a girlfriend in the show who was a, a singer. Mm-hmm. And so I would ride with her on the uh, singer's bus. So I knew some of the singers apart from just, you know, being in the show with them and right. so forth. So the buses departed from a, a little, I don't think it was actually a bus station. It was maybe a little area that had been worked out by the theater where the buses could, could get loaded and they would come back to this same spot with the cast after the show. Right. It was at, always at night. The show would usually take place at dusk 
or in the late afternoon, and it would be dark by the time we got back, right by Times Square, and only maybe 50 yards from the subway entrance. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what I would do would be to get off the bus, go right to the subway, get on the train, and go to my apartment uptown in mm -hmm. near on 92nd Street. That's when we were living there. So... On this particular night, I walked over toward the subway, and I couldn't get right to the entrance to the stairs because there was a big crowd, and they were grouped around a little clearing in the center, and there was three people in the center. There was an old man who appeared to have a child with him, a little boy, and he was talking to what looked like a roughneck, tough guy. They were arguing, and it looked like they were going to have a fight, and the crowd wanted to see the fight, it turned out. Lord of the Flies. <laughs> so I, I sort of uh, started to watch, and I saw this thug was taunting the old man, and uh, I, it just got madder and madder. I hate bullies. But anyway, all of a sudden, the the rough guy hit the old man, it hit him right in the jaw, and I could hear his teeth clatter, and that did it. I, I just went black. I dove into the situation, which was really a stupid thing to do. Right away, the crowd hated me. I was interrupting with the fun that was about to start. They were maybe going to watch an old guy get beat up and who knows what drama. And maybe a cop would come and that would be exciting too. Who knows? But anyway, the crowd hated me. I grabbed this guy without really realizing what I was doing. I just grabbed him and I threw him on the ground. I was fantastically strong at the moment I did that. I just threw him flat and... The old man with his little boy disappeared. Gone. And I'm looking at this guy on the ground, and he's looking at me, and he stands up, and he says, I don't know what you've got going, but uh, I'm ready for you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my strength drained right out of me. I, all of a sudden, I thought, what happens if I'm in the wrong? Who knows what was happening between those people? Maybe the old man was a drug guy and had cheated this guy or something. I mean, who know? I just, I was in a situation. I didn't know why I was there or whether I was on the right side or the wrong side of something. Right. I was scared to death. And the crowd was, they were just there. Now they wanted to see me get beat yeah. up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the singers from the show named Bill Linton, Bill understood what was happening. He saw me go into the situation, and he just sensed what was happening right away. And he got himself through the crowd, reached through and grabbed my hand, pulled me away from the guy and back into the crowd. And he said, come on, John, let's get out of here. And we went down into the subway. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just following my feet, following him. But at the bottom of the stairs in the subway, there was a cop. And he was doing this trick that cops did with their billy club, swinging it in a certain way that was entertaining to him. <laughs> Intimidating to everybody else, probably. <laughs> and I said to him, there's a terrible fight upstairs. You need to have a look at that. There's, there's a bunch of people and a, a very bad guy, and, and they need your attention. And he said, well, it's okay. My job is down here. There's nothing happening down here. I'm not going up there. <laughs> and uh, Swing in his club. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. And so I just went and got on my train and thanked Bill Linton. And that was the end of that. 
Wow. New York can be pretty rough. There's there's a lot of uh, bad people on the street, a lot of people who are very poor and are extremely inconvenienced by living cheek to jowl with so many other people. Everybody wants something from me yeah, kind of yeah. thing, you know. A crowd in New York can be ugly, really ugly. I imagine that's all still totally true today. Oh, I imagine it is true. Uh, but certain parts of town tend to get more coarse mm-hmm. people than other parts. Because I've never people lived, are poor yeah. and hungry and downtrodden, they're not going to be as yeah. content as yeah. people who are more comfortable, oh, right? Exactly. Exactly. Do you have any nice, bright stories about public transit? Yeah. You don't necessarily meet people you know in New York very much. But of course, if you're traveling public transit and you're out on the street a lot, as when I was in, we're trying to get work as an actor, I would make rounds. I would go from, you know, one casting place or one agent to another, trying to get somebody to pay attention to me and give me an opportunity of some sort or other. So I was out on the street a lot, and and it would happen that somebody that I knew would bump into me because they were out there too. That happened a couple of different ways. Oh, in the subway, a couple things. A few things have happened in the subway. Good things. One day I was walking through the cars, trying to go to the car that was going to be nearest where I wanted to get out. Right. I used to have fun making a game of that in Toronto, figuring out what car to get on to get out right at right. the stairs or at the escalator. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. So I'm walking through the cars and there's Alan Arkin that I knew from Bennington. And he's sitting there and he's reading a book called Catch-22. He said, this is the funniest damn thing I've ever read. This this book is hilarious. you got to read this book. And I sat down. We talked shop a little bit about uh, about getting ahead in the theater and so forth. And he still hadn't had a break of any kind. And uh, he said, I think what you need more than anything else is a memorable name. You need to be memorable somehow. And he said, your name is pretty memorable. And that's true. It is. Starkweather is not a common name. That's right. (laughs) Which is Um, why I will never change my name. So anyway, this little... Chris. That was... (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to you. (laughs) It's never going to (laughs) happen. Aside to my honey. So anyway, that was just a brief encounter with Alan Arkin. And that was before he got into uh, Enter Laughing. Alan had a a knack for humor. He was was a funny guy. And the thing that is the weird connection about that story, he was reading Catch-22. Later on, after he had first had his his break and he got he had, I think he'd already done a movie he got the lead in Catch-22 in the film uh, he played Yosarian and the movie opens with him sitting in a tree just like in the book at any rate there he was reading the story and he had no idea and I had no idea that he would be in a movie about that book playing yeah. the lead later on <laughs> funny eh Another time, I was in a car that was mostly empty, but there was a pretty woman sitting across from me and down with two little children, two little girls. Suddenly, this woman says, uh, you're John Starkweather, aren't you? (laughs) Oh, well, yes, I am. (laughs) And I realized immediately that she must be someone who had been a student at Bennington. And that was the case. Her name was Ellen Lapidus, and we had a rather nice relationship for a long time, which I abandoned stupidly at one point when I just really wanted to 
be in bed with the most beautiful woman in the world, and I had an opportunity, and I kissed Helen Lapidus off, and that was the end of that. And pretty soon, the beautiful thing that I envisioned, that evaporated too. <laughs> Much of my experiences in New York revolved around my singleness and my mm -hmm. love life, all this dating I was doing. And you were like early to late 20s there? How, how many years I, were you there? I was 27 in Camelot. So after I was out of that, it was the years between 20, 27 and 30. Were you happy that you moved on from acting and dancing? I mean, dancing, you didn't, you, unfortunately, you didn't have a choice. I was very unhappy. One morning I was, I was lying in bed with Ellen Lapidus, the one I just mentioned. And, uh, this was after I had the cast off and I had tried to get some strength back and it wasn't coming. She says to me, Johnny, you look so sad. What's the matter? And I started to cry. I just realized that I really was never going to dance again. Mm. And that's what I really loved. I really loved dancing. I loved performing. I loved moving to music. I loved finding the expressiveness that's in gesture. Mm. Um, it was everything. It was really what I was meant to do. The fact that I began at the age of 21 and got injured before I had my 22nd birthday was the reason I never was able to really go ahead with that. At the very best, when I was in the best shape before I got hurt again, I got, I injured my knee after the original time at Bennington. I injured my knee quite a few times. And then I also injured the other one. And I've had surgery on both of them. Um, and so did you did you um gravitate towards Montessori and doing this new thing because you just had to get out of that world because you couldn't dance anymore? Do you feel that that do you know what I mean? Well was I, Montessori I, no, like I had to you know the what what I went to from from the dancing was by way of acting and stage managing and that wasn't really promising. Mm -hmm. It wasn't promising, although I kept thinking maybe I can get something out of it. And then when Judd and I did that scene for Actor Studio, I thought, well, something could come out of that. But nothing did. So and that, the puppeteering was branching off too. But the dancing was really what I loved. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was in Bob Joffrey's class, we were working on, on entrechassis. That's where you jump straight up and you... Click, yeah. flicker your feet kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just starting to come. But Bob liked me. And one day he said, you know, I think you're going to have a good career in dance, John. And uh, that meant so much to me. Can I ask you, before we move on from all of this, unless, do you have anything, any more stories you want to tell specifically? Uh, there's so many others I could tell you. I got some beautiful stories from Twin Oaks. <laughs> I think that's another episode. I think so. The too. hippie years. Yeah. So yeah. I should have introduced you as Johnny Starkweather, and the next time you're on, you'll be Justin. Because <laughs> my dad, I introduced you as Justin, yeah. which is your name colloquially, right? <laughs> oh, everybody knows me as Justin. Everybody knows you as Justin. And that's... But your legal name is John, and you were John during this time. Oh, oh I was John until I got to Twin Oaks. Yeah. And Twin Oaks to, is a commune. Yeah. This is 
and to any any woman that I was serious with, I was Johnny, and I was Johnny to to my brother Woody, who still calls me Johnny. Yeah. And Janet is Woody's wife, and Janet calls me Johnny. They're the only people in the world that still call me Johnny. Well, I was hoping before I wrap this all up that you could tell the story because I was thinking I might call this episode "My Daddy Was a Ballerina." <laughs> <laughs> So I was wondering if you could tell the origin story of why I might call this episode My Daddy Was a Ballerina. <laughs> okay. I came to Canada to get married and have a family. That's a bit of a story, too. But anyway. That's why I'm uh, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So my wife, Deborah, and I, um, she already had a child named Sarah, whom I adopted. Sarah became Sarah Starkweather. But when I met Sarah, it was actually the second time I met her. I met her as an infant, too. But I met her uh, when she was about two and a half or three and going to a daycare place as her mother and I went to work in a car uh, that was being driven by Deborah's friend, whose little girl was in the back seat with Sarah and me. I was riding in the back seat with the children and Deborah was in the front seat with her friend. So we're going along and Sarah says, are you going to be my daddy? And I didn't really know quite how to respond except to, you know, say yes. And I wasn't sure about my answer, but it sort of confirmed it. It was from that, after I'd said yes to a child, yeah. I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it happened later. By the time that Sarah went to public school, she was in class one day, and the teacher had asked the children to stand up and talk a little bit, which, of course, is a good thing to do with little children. They need to get practice talking and learning to talk to other people mm -hmm. is, you know, one of your basic social skills. So anyway, she was having the children stand up and talk on that day about something that had to do with their fathers, maybe what sort of work their father did or something they liked about their father. Anyway, Sarah's turn to say something came along. She stood up and she said, my daddy's a ballerina. <laughs> Okay. Did I tell you I would ask you what you've been listening to? I bet I can bet what you're going to say. Try a guess. Are you going to say Anna Vitovich? Is that her name? <laughs> I, I have listened to Anna Vitovich uh, lately, but uh, a couple of nights ago, I tuned into recording of Philippe Jordan conducting the Amsterdam Symphony at the proms of 2010 playing the Fifth Symphony of Shostakovich. That is my very favorite symphony. And I listened to it all the way through, took a little over an hour, and uh, it was just fantastic. I just, what is it called? It is the Fifth Symphony of Dmitry Shostakovich.
it's extremely dramatic. Uh, Shostakovich wrote that symphony after having been criticized for something that he'd written that wasn't sufficiently Russian or uh, sufficiently communistic or something like okay. that. Remember, Stalin was in charge of everything, and Stalin was knocking people off right and left if they didn't agree with him or he didn't like something about them. Shostakovich had a mentor who was executed for oh, some wow. reason. Yeah, Shostakovich was worried about his health when he wrote uh, the Fifth Symphony, and he was trying to make sure that it was going to please Stalin. And at the same time, he really wanted to express something about the quality of life to Russians at that time. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Russians, it, it, the music is infused with the Russian spirit. The joyful parts are exhilarating. The sad parts are, are devastating. And beside that, there's also militaristic sections. Mm -hmm. And the way it ends is with a gigantic explosion. It's 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 absolutely a, a work that goes beyond. I think it's in terms of symphonic music has lots of high points. I named a few of them. Brahms has written lots of wonderful things, and and Tchaikovsky too. But there you go. I think the Russians, Prokofiev, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, my three guys. That's the ones I love. One of these days, I'm going to own a T-shirt that says Shostakovich. <laughs> in the front of it. Well, now that you've said that, that day might come sooner than you imagined. <laughs> Your birthday is coming up. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I have been listening to, well, it's a podcast that's been on for a while, but they just recently started releasing episodes. And I know you're not a big podcast guy, but if you get into podcasts, I think you'd really enjoy this. It's called Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel? And she is a therapist. And so she has, it's usually couples, but there was a mother-child pair recently. And it's basically a therapy session, but she's very insightful. And it's really, it's a great show. So she's releasing new episodes lately. I've been listening to that. I have never listened to a podcast, including yours, I'm sorry to say. Well, that's okay. I told you that it was usually too crass for you anyway. <laughs> I, I, I need to get up with the times. And uh, so if you'll explain to me how I can listen to podcasts in general and yours in particular, I'll make an effort. I okay. Should, I, I do want to do it. I'll do it. Okay. Not on the air, though, because the people who are listening to this already know how to do it. <laughs> Good. Dad, do you have anything you want to promote, like your YouTube channel or your Christmas music? People can go on Apple Music and look up Justin Starkweather and find some really different Christmas music. What is your YouTube uh, channel? It's called Grandpa's Songbook. If you want to try and find my songs, you should cite Grandpa's Songbook and my name, Justin Starkweather. Connect the two somehow. I'm not sure just how you would do it best to find me. I think if you just go on YouTube and search for Justin Starkweather. Maybe. But the channel's Grandpa Songbook, right? Yep. Yeah. Grandpa's Songbook. All right. You can find me, Melody's Art, at melodystarkweather.ca. 
And the podcast you can find at Teach Me Tiger Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash teach me tiger podcast, where for as little as $2 a month, you can help us out immensely and also gain access to all of our bonus material, which includes a bonus episode for every free episode like this one. Thank you so much to our patrons. Thank you everyone for listening. And last but not least, thank you to my daddy for coming on the podcast. Uh, well, you're quite welcome. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, it's nice to be the center of attention once in a while. <laughs> well, I'm just grateful for this opportunity to tell the world how much I love you. Oh, honey, I love you too. <laughs> and I think that's it. Okay. And remember, it's a jungle out there. Roar! <laughs> Rather a deep voice, especially. Oh, now I with think a you'll cold. be good. I so think you'll be good. I'll, I'll make a I'll make a loud loud low. Roar. <laughs> 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 oh, perfect. Fun. Well, that's fun. <laughs>